There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hi, this is Brad. Welcome back to the Essential School Sucks. This is number four. School has robbed young people of their why. So in 2019, when this show was recorded, teen anxiety and depression levels had reached startling new highs. Then 2020 happened. As I curate this collection of shows for you, the concerned or frustrated parent, I have had concerns about some of the material being slightly dated. But here's the really unfortunate thing about public school that actually works well for my purposes here. Any problem that's talked about at any point in the past still basically exists with new problems layered on top of it. I mean, I guess if somebody was doing a podcast in like the 1950s and they're like, I can't believe these schools are segregated. I mean, that problem is solved. But that example is like such an exception to the rule. Any problem that I was talking about in 2010, in 2014, in 2017, in this case, 2019, are now just pre-existing layers of problems under the current problems that might have brought you to me. So the next few shows are going to be a look inside the school environment. And today, especially, we're going to talk about something that is, I think, very present in so many young people, but it's a very difficult thing to speak about. So my guest, Dan Sanchez, and I are going to try and put some language to it. Giving things definition allows us to, you know, move them conceptually from one place to another to share these ideas more effectively. So I hope these next few shows will be helpful in building a vocabulary about how to talk about schools' environmental problems. The problems are, you know, cultural, political, environmental, content, obviously, like that's the biggest issue right now is like what is actually being taught in the schools. But the environment itself is producing a kind of obedience, a conformity, and an apathy, what I 12 years ago called the three hidden lessons of school, that makes these other intrusions, maybe the things you're most concerned about now, possible. So this is not a new problem. Young people are drowning in meaninglessness and purposelessness. And most of them, I think, are searching for answers. We have a real problem, and it's worsened over the last couple of years since we recorded this show. Political operators, tech giants, and disingenuous marketers are happy to tap into that desire for meaning, that angst that young people feel, and exploit it, and offer young people 
uh, a pre-packaged why. So I think you certainly see how dangerous the whole school environment is, leaving the youth as these potential vessels for the bad ideas of authorities. So I'm trying to curate this collection the best I can. I'm trying to be respectful of your time. So I snipped a few things out of the monologue. I don't think you'll notice. But if I'm talking about something at the beginning of the show that isn't relevant to you right now, I'm going to try and take it out. So that's it. Please stick around until after the show if you want to learn more about how you can support the School Sucks Project and our future endeavors. For now, this is The Essential School Sucks number four. School has robbed young people of their why. Originally released as episode 630, School Has Robbed Young People of Their Why, on November 12th, 2019. Just a few months before the world changed, this was the conversation we were having. The same kind of anxiety and depression that, that we've been talking about Part of it is lack of self-direction and the lack of self-discipline because it's replaced by other direction and other discipline. But also there's just a lot of just scaremongering and just kind of emotional abuse, I think, especially around some of these public issues. You know, Greta Thunberg talks about, she, she says something like, you've, you've stolen my childhood, saying that to, to world leaders, really. But really like the, the people who most stole her childhood are the people who have terrorized her with these apocalyptic messages. I see it in on, on Twitter a lot, especially like so many young people, they, they're really anxious about the world literally ending within their lifetime. So part of it is, is also just because they're so anxious about that, that this activism is, is engineered from that too. I guess at least it is better than, than outright nihilism although for some people like a lot of this apocalyptic rhetoric does kind of cultivate a certain nihilism at least Greta Thunberg has a cause even if it's not hers and hopefully she'll eventually channel that passion into something that is authentically hers but then lots of kids don't even have anything to channel because again their why has been so atrophied. Let's talk about today's show. It is a new voice on a familiar problem. It's a problem we've been talking about off and on for a decade and always worth revisiting when I find somebody who has new and interesting things to say about it. So my guest today is Dan Sanchez, the director of content at the Foundation for Economic Education. Dan and I spent our first meeting talking about how schooling leaves young people and older people who never, like sufficiently address this problem, kind of rudderless. And that is not just professionally, that is also ideologically. This is, in my opinion, a terrible problem for young people today, both in high school and in college, sent out into the world without ever really having time to contemplate, never mind cultivate, their own identity, critical thinking skills, a coherent worldview, and it leaves targets all over them, and those targets are being repeatedly struck by college professors, political operators. And we don't have to go too far back in uh, recent news to see examples of 
young people being used as tools, as billboards for uh, political purposes. So today, Dan and I address this problem. We talk about some solutions for how people, young and old, can get their rudders back. We go at this through an educational lens and also a parental lens. Don't worry, Dan's a parent, so I defer to him on that. And I'm happy with how this first conversation turned out. I look forward to collaborating more with Dan in the future. He blogs regularly at Fee. That website is fee.org. And there is a link to some of his relevant blogs in the show notes. Please don't forget to at least just go take a look at sspuniversity.com slash ideas into action on how you can become more skilled at the acquisition assimilation, and presentation of new information. Again, that is SSP, University. Just spell it, university.com slash ideas into action. On that page, you'll find a little more detail about each of the presentations. There's a table of contents just so you can get a sense of what time commitments different presentations require. And recently, somebody challenged me to explain the whole Ideas into Action Summit in one sentence. So there's a video doing just that. That video is one minute long, and it's going to be one of the best minutes of your day. I know I'm always asking you guys to do things to help the show, but I'm very, very grateful that you are just willing to give me your time whenever a new show comes out, whether you're a new listener or an old listener. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much, and I will talk to you again soon. Dan, how you doing? Hi, Brett. I'm great. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm happy to have you. There's so many different directions we can go in today. I'm going to try and focus on between one and three blogs that you have uh, written for Fee. Dan, by the way, everybody, is the director of content at the Foundation for Economic Education. You are also the editor at uh, Fee.org, and you either are or used to be a writing coach with our friends at Praxis. You still doing that? Yes, I am. It's been three years now. Awesome. Most recent guests in my podcast feed, all Praxis guys. Zach was my last guest. And then I was actually down there. I was down in South Carolina and we did a little round table with Isaac and TK. So uh, I'm a big promoter of Praxis for free all the time because I think they're like the perfect embodiment of so much of what I uh, hope education can look like in the future. And that's something that we're going to talk about today. Totally agree. But because we've never talked before, I wanted to hear a little bit about your background, your philosophical journey leading up to the work you currently do with Fee. I know we only have an hour today, but tell us all about yourself. Sure. Um, so I've long been really interested in education. At first, I had pretty much the opposite views of, of what I uh, have now. I minored in education at UC Berkeley. At, at the time, I was all about government schooling. Mm. Um, if anything, that like I thought private schools were, were a problem and, and that like school, schooling wasn't uh, e egalitarian enough. And so I was all about like top-down solutions, standards in 
school I was all about like with the actual curriculum and like the discipline I, I was I was all about strict discipline and strict rules and strict consequences for uh, um, in, in order to like mold uh, young people's uh, behavior and and I was also not a libertarian at the time either but then after I graduated it was in a in a class at UC Berkeley actually I, I took a extended learning class because I was still living in the area and um, and I was working in education at the time I was working at a science museum we were teaching um, hands-on science workshops at schools and and it was a museum that that kids could come to and while I was working there I took this public policy class and it really was my first introduction to uh, libertarian thought that um, I, I kind of wasn't even really aware of it. Um, and this, the professor himself wasn't a libertarian, but it was just one of the policy options that he he presented. Hmm. And once once I learned that it even existed, I was pretty much uh, enamored right away. Like I think I've always I've always kind of been a, a a latent libertarian. It was just a matter of like learning about it in the first place. Um, and then that eventually gradually became an interest in libertarian approaches to education and just a realization of how public schools, how, how government schools are uh, really bad for kids and um, an and, and interest in, in homeschooling. And then especially when my daughter was an infant, I got really um, passionate about learning more about homeschooling philosophies in depth and discovered Montessori, discovered um, people like John Holt and Peter Gray and uh, Carrie McDonald. And th that just became a, a huge influence on me. And eventually I um, just became interested in unschooling and, and really devoted to unschooling and alternative education. So you mentioned Peter Gray you mentioned Carrie McDonald, uh, John Holt. What about uh, specifics as far as like what you were reading or maybe even if you have any and if you can remember them, some impactful moments or revelations in that process for you? Probably the one there was one article that I remember made a huge difference. Uh, and surprisingly, it was Herbert Spencer. Ooh. Uh, and yeah. Usually, he's not really known as an education uh, philosopher. Like he's he's known as a political philosopher, a classical liberal. But he had this one essay where he talked about uh, natural consequences in the life of of the child, and how imposing artificial consequences really prevents a child from learning, and how children need to learn from like the natural consequences, good or uh, good or bad from their uh, their behavior in order to actually adapt uh, and and to, to mature and to grow up and the way the way he put it was so convincing that that particular article played played a big role yeah absolutely like as a former teacher myself I don't know if I was able to articulate it so clearly in my own thoughts but I remember having to play these enforcement roles in the various educational finger quotes, educational settings that I worked in back then, the question would have been something like, are we teaching cause and effect or are we teaching kids that adults are annoying and petty? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's what it seemed like a lot of the time. What kind of came through in the process of these these artificial consequences was resentment, which was just poisonous to any kind of uh, partnership an educator would hope to have before 
you know, unfortunately for too many of us, I mean, I was in a boarding school. It was a high stress environment, a lot of behaviorally uh, special needs kids. So people got burned out really fast, but I felt like we were just projecting resentment, making it a, a hostile work environment and a hostile learning environment, which is not a learning environment. Yeah. So you caught my eye with a very short piece you wrote and it led to me looking through your archives on fee and reading uh, some more of your work. But I wanted to talk today about a problem and a solution presented in this blog called School Has Robbed Young People of Their Why. You know, like I said, I've been I've been doing this show a long time. And in the beginning, it was very problems focused, right? It was it was quite negative. I had a lot of negative things to say. I had lots of rants about what was happening on public schools at all levels and in higher education, even though higher education seemed like less of a focus at the time. I'm actually, after really trying to shift content in a more positive direction, now contemplating a strategy where we go back to exploring problems because there are so many things happening in the schools today and with young people today in the culture that I never even could have dreamed of, you know, when I started doing this in, in 2009. And I think a lot of it is worth revisiting. But I'm, I, that being said, I'm always interested in the, a fresh take on the problem. You talk about this need is something that I've become very aware of in, in young people and their behavior over the last year, needing to rebuild these rudders. School broke. That's the path to them being able to find their way, to find their purpose in life. And I just wanted to talk, first of all, about your observations that led to you putting that in print. Yeah, well, mostly it's observing just the struggles that so many young people are, are having these days that um, I've read so many stories about how uh, depression and anxiety rates are at just record levels and um, and how it just seems that young people just really feel lost, that that, that a lot of young people that they, they don't know what to do with their lives. Um, they don't know what um, what to do with their careers. Oftentimes, they um, they have a, a failure to launch where they um, still depend on on their parents. And even when they do land a job, that they struggle with finding meaning in, in their job and worry so much about like whether it's right for them. And they, they don't know what they want out of relationships. That that there's just so much ennui and anxiety and depression. And I I really think that it traces back to just a, a lack of being able to set one's own direction. And I trace that back to school because really it's self-direction that they're missing. And it's because they don't have practice in developing that self-direction hmm. because it's always been other direction that, um, especially now, because like, like you said, it, it, it seems that things have been getting worse. And, and I think it's because schools have become even um, more regimented and, and helicopter parenting has become e even more of a problem where so much of children's lives are directed by, uh, by authority figures, uh, whether in school or, or, or at home or in their, um, in, in their structured activities after school or, or, or on weekends. Like whereas at least before there was there was some at home and after school and and somewhat in school that there was some uh, agency and some self direction now often in an effort to remedy the failings of school they just double down on what was the problem in the first place by by just imposing uh, more externally provided uh, direction and structure 
but the, but the problem is what happens after they graduate. What happens after that externally provided direction and structure is pulled out? Well, their muscle of developing their own direction and structure has completely atrophied. Yeah. And so with that, when when the external props are pulled out and they don't they don't the, the crutches are pulled out from uh, under them and they they don't have the strength to stand on their own, that it makes sense that they feel so lost. Absolutely. So let's focus on that for a minute. And then I want to change directions because I think there's another more potentially damaging, definitely nefarious manifestation of this this problem that we're talking about. But let's let's stick to this track first, which is more about career and finding purpose. I have felt like there has been a trend in parents outsourcing more of this responsibility uh, to the school, like definitely over my lifetime and even over my career as an educator. It would be, and, and again, these are only anecdotes. These are only snapshots. Maybe when I wasn't involved, these parents were very attentive to their children. But uh, I used to work in you know a really competitive area, Needham, Massachusetts. So lots of kids who were AP, Ivy League bound. And I would do academic tutoring. I would do college consulting. And I would do uh, primarily SAT tutoring. That was sort of the bread and butter of, it probably still is the bread and butter of any tutoring business. And I would just kind of be led off to a room with this kid to do the educational activities kind of as an enforcement agent for the school. But I saw very, very little parental. I was just like another uh, staff member in that process that the parents had entirely outsourced. So there's that. But then there's this helicopter thing that's that's also happening. And maybe you could help me square that. Because you're right, these kids had their lives micromanaged between school and tutoring and extracurricular activities and building a uh, decent college uh, application. So, so all aspects of their lives from like 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. were managed by adults with very little say from them, from my observations. So we have the helicoptering, but we also have, it, it almost seems like more faith being put in the school or less responsibility being taken by parents. Do you see that? Yes, um, although I think that the way you characterized it is that you were kind of an enforcement arm of the school, that you were kind of deputized by this, uh, a, a deputy of the school. And I, I see that as um, being true of parents, too, that yeah. parents have basically become like deputized teachers, that, that so much of the relationship between the parents and, and the kids is basically um, making sure that they do their homework, um, making sure that uh, they're they're performing well enough in school, um, making sure that they uh, that they do the extra extracurricular activities, and even when parents are super involved in their kids' lives, it's uh, on behalf of uh, on behalf of the school, and it's yeah. it's not an authentic relationship. Uh, yeah, and and the school often comes between parents and their children in that way when the parents feel like they have to play that that enforcement role and that was another uh battle and this was sort of as i was phasing that part of my career out of my life because it became very frustrating um parents like school teaches obedience conformity and i would say the the outcome of those two lessons is unfortunately for too many people a kind of permanent apathy and you could see it in in the parents as well, where there would be this resignation of, well, I guess if that's what the teacher says. I mean, I heard that more than once, um, resigning themselves, resigning their whole family to something that wasn't best for them or for their child. Uh, that was a that was a pretty common occurrence. So the other angle here that I've really noticed 
through a series of news events in the last year and a half, and I said that this was more nefarious and potentially more damaging. Obviously, you know, in that blog, I remember you had a, a, a Mises quote, uh, human action is purposeful behavior, right? And, and yeah. if you spend 15,000 hours robbed of an opportunity to pursue purposeful behavior, there's going to be ugly consequences of that for sure. But people who are in high school primarily, and I would say it's, it's probably true in middle school, as they start to feel like adults, they, they want that independence. That's natural. They, they crave a kind of autonomy and an ability to self-direct. And we've seen a kind of exploitation of that, I would say, politically. So the two examples I paid a lot of attention to, like in 2018 and this year, obviously the, the fallout from the Parkland shooting right, where all of those kids were sort of mobilized into basically anti-Second Amendment activism. And one that we've seen more recently was uh, these climate strikes led by that poor girl from uh, overseas. Yeah, you know, basically just turned into, like so many other children, a kind of political prop, you know. And and I've seen this with children as young as two or three years old at rallies for some cause holding signs they can't even read uh, about issues they certainly don't understand. But just if we want to focus in on high school kids, these are people who are searching for purpose. They're searching for meaning. They, they day in and day out, leave these, lead these lives that are not self-directed. So my theory about this is when they're given a chance, right? Like those Parkland kids were told, you're saving the world, Oh, and, the, and the climate thing is, is an even better example of this. That's like literally saving the world. You are on the right side in a battle of good versus evil. And I could see a lot of kids, a lot of kids I got very annoyed with, especially around, around the Parkland, thing, like feeling like they didn't really understand the issues. But if that was me and I was 17 years old and I was given that opportunity to go on television or to be a spokesperson or to be the face of what I believed to be a righteous cause, with the wisdom that I had at the time, I would have taken it in a second, and I probably wouldn't have looked back. And it's interesting that one of those kids from Parkland, his name's Cameron Kasky, actually, before he even turned 18 years old, was able to go through a period of self-reflection and say, yeah, I was really overzealous. You know, I took a really unhelpful tone with a lot of the way we were trying to put that message out. I thought that was a really promising development for him. But there are plenty of kids who political operators are happy to use, happy to tap into their angst and use it for political purposes. So I'd like to just hear your thoughts on that, because I think that, especially considering the stress and the the division that that is causing and exacerbated by other political things and other technological things like social media, bringing kids into that arena because it is a counterfeit way of of satisfying a real need that they have, a need to make meaning, a need to feel purposeful, I think is a a bit of a disturbing trend. Well, yeah, I I agree with that. And I also think it's an artificial need to an extent, because I think that the same kind of anxiety uh, and depression that, that we've been talking about Part of it is, as we've said, the lack of self-direction and the lack of um, self-discipline because it's replaced by other direction and other other discipline. But also, there's just a lot of just scaremongering uh, and and just kind of emotional abuse. I think, uh, especially around some of these public issues that 
um, you know, Greta Thunberg talks about, she, she says something like, you've, you've stolen my childhood, saying that to corporations and saying that to, you know, people who don't, well, well, to, to world leaders, really. But really, like the, the people who most stole her childhood are, are the people who have terrorized her with these apocalyptic messages I see it in on, on Twitter a lot, especially like so many young people, they, they're really anxious about the world literally ending w- within their lifetime. So, so part of it is, is also just because they're so anxious about that, that this activism is, is engineered from that too. At least, I, I guess at least it is better than, than outright nihilism. Although for, for some people, like a lot of this, uh, a lot of the environmental, uh, apocalyptic rhetoric does kind of um, cultivate a certain nihilism but at least I don't know at least Greta Thunberg has a cause even if it's not hers and hopefully she'll eventually channel that passion into something that is authentically hers but then then there's lots of kids who don't even have anything to channel because again their why has been so atrophied absolutely and I think her situation now, like obviously, it's interesting. Like somebody is useful for a period, and then they just disappear. Like I haven't heard anything about her in months, and I'm not saying I never will hear anything about her again. But you know, she shows up just like an advertising campaign. This person that we're supposed to be so invested in and so proud of shows up, flashes in the pan, and then just disappears. And I often wonder what happens to these young people when they are cast into the spotlight like that. And then they develop this, again, this artificial sense of importance around something they don't really believe in. Uh, And they're sitting ducks for it as well, because it's not like they're being taught critical thinking skills in, in school. It's very, very easy for them to buy into this kind of ideological programming because they, you know, they don't understand logical fallacies. They don't understand rhetorical trickery. And the organization of the forces in, in the world into good and evil the darkness and the light, that's a very convenient model for young people. And I certainly see why they embrace it. I was, I was fully embracing that, you know, just a, a lack of nuance through almost every stage of coming to some kind of new idea, right? Whether, whether I was in college and learning this sort of revisionist history, uh, who are the good guys and bad guys, right? Whenever there's like a new theater of discovery, the question is who's good and who's bad. It's, it's the simplest way to basically fool yourself into thinking it makes sense. And if people are not given the skills of how to learn for themselves, they're just uh, easy to hit targets over and over again for these kinds of things. Yeah. That's what I see happening. Well, let's talk about some solutions for this. You end the article talking about how kids can get their rudders back, right? They've lost their rudders through continuous training in obedience, and I would add the social environment of school adds conformity to that as well. A lot of these lessons are implicit, but they're consistent. They're never defined, which uh, I think makes them even more dangerous. If kids do resist them, they get in trouble. And if they don't resist them, they also get in trouble later on, right? If they're just obedient conformists, like trouble awaits uh, in that case as well. So here they are in this situation as a result of these lessons, rudderless, purposeless. What are your ideas for helping them get that rudder back, get that rudder working? 
I think it's useful to start even earlier and think about how those rudders are developed naturally in the first place, even if they're not broken at all. And, and that is by um, the inherent curiosity of, of children yeah. um, and their inherent obsessiveness. When it comes to developing a why, like kids are naturally attuned to developing their why, that they're naturally obsessive, that you know, kids, you know, famously get obsessed about Pokemon, about um, uh, certain toy series, certain doll series, certain video games, just certain activities. Um, that's often seen as like a bad thing because the norm is that, well, people are supposed to be well-rounded. And so you, you can't be too obsessed with, with one thing that that needs to be curtailed so that you can have like a balanced uh, curriculum. But that is really uh, counterproductive because obsession, e- even though you're not going to use like Pokemon, you know, as a career necessarily, obsession itself is like a meta skill. It's like like getting so devoted and dedicated and immersed in something that you want to learn everything about it, that you want to just master it. That is a, a mindset that is transferable to anything else. Right. And that's the natural way that kids develop their why is that they develop the propensity to get passionate about things. And eventually that propensity can translate into being passionate about life direction, about one's career and one's meaning in life and 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 what what they want to get out of their relationships. And a big part of it is also emulating adults or older kids who themselves are pursuing their whys. The fallacy is that the only role that adults and, and um, can play is by setting the why for the, the child. But just by seeing adults passionately pursuing their own interests, that's what kids emulate. That, that's what kids look up to. That's, that's another just natural, inherent um, propensity of children is that they that they admire independent elders who are pursuing their their own wise with with passion and they want to emulate it they they want to uh develop that kind of independence themselves and so adults really serve best as something to emulate and not something to dictate and so i i think that's the natural way that that kids develop develop self-direction and self-discipline so then it becomes a, a question of like, okay, well, what if they didn't have that kind of an upbringing? Uh, what, if, what if instead they were sent through the Pavlovian hoop jumping of school where, where all that they had a chance to do was just learn how to be obedient and learn how to follow externally provided direction and structure? Then what? Really, like, it's, it's just a matter of de-schooling oneself of realizing what the problem is. And that's why I think this, this kind of message is not only valuable for, uh, for teachers and, and for kids and for parents, but it's also just valuable for young adults yes. to know the, the origin of some of the struggles that they're having, because, because then uh, it's a matter of de-schooling yourself. You know, that's a whole other, other subject in and of itself, but it starts with knowing what, how, how the problem started in the first place. Let's talk about that for a second, because that's something that we've we've done a couple of shows on the on the de-schooling concept. But what do you think the key features of that are? Like, let's say for 
somebody who's been through the schooling process, right? Because that's that's probably the most common case of a need for deschooling. Certainly, there are kids who are pulled out of school by their parents after eighth grade, after tenth grade, after third grade. Most of us go all the way through. <laughs> most of us go to college, right? And then at some point, and there's certainly a lot of these people in my audience, we realize that our education had not only some shortcomings, not only left us with some blind spots, but it had some very subtle but persistently damaging kinds of effects on us. So if there were, I'm not asking you to, to make a checklist, but if there were some highlights of a conscious de-schooling process for young adults and adults who are coming to these realizations, what do you, what do you think is important about that? Well, I'm not endorsing this because uh, I, I haven't gone through it myself, but it's the kind of thing that I think um, uh, young people can can do to de-school themselves is, is what Jordan Peterson calls uh, self-authoring. Yeah. Um, and, and that is like, um, there's, there's past authoring and future authoring where uh, you kind of like think about your, your life as a story and like what were some of like the, the, um, the big themes of that story and what can you, can you learn from that story? And to future author is to uh, really in, envision your life. Like uh, the way he puts it that like envisioning a hell and a heaven that like if, if all of your vices uh, that that you that you can see were able to just run rampant. Like, where would you be? You know, one year down the road, five years down the road, uh, or or if you were able to like accentuate all of your virtues, what could you attain one year down the road, five five years down down the road? And and I think that kind of articulating one's own life story, both in in the past and and in the future, um, is one way of sort of taking back responsibility for your own life and undoing like how you were forced to abdicate that responsibility through through the schooling process that's the kind of thinking that like we've just been trained like not to do anymore because it's not really up to us like you know what what we do one year five year down down the road when we're in sixth grade it's like well you just follow the program. Um, but, but once there is no program, it's like, you, you've got to figure that out yourself. And, and um, really, it, it all comes down to articulating it some way. And, and one of the best ways and the, the way that Jordan Peterson has people who go, who go through his self-authoring program um, is basically journaling. It's just basically, you know, writing down these plans and, and um, reflections of, about yourself and your life. I think that's part of it. And the, the two things that, that are, are so missing because of school are self-direction and self-discipline. And the self-direction part, that's, you know, that can be provided by sort of the, that like vision thinking. The self-discipline part, I think, can, can be provided by really paying attention to one's habits. Habits are something that like we just uh, oftentimes we've cult- cultivated from school that and and that it's just something that we're we're kind of stuck stuck with but but habits can be hacked and there there are a lot of really great books on like habit formation and and how to alter alter your habits but but basically if you can alter your habits then that is the the path to self-structure and self-discipline um and so i i think that those i think of those as really the two components of de-schooling excellent Easier to build a new habit or to break a bad habit? What do you think? Hmm. I n- I've never thought of that. 
like I certainly still have things that I do in my life that I don't love that are sort of these um, autopilot features, right? And this is actually part of my my last conversation with Zach. We were doing, um, and we will be continuing, a series on self-discipline. And the title of the show that I did with Zach was um, Automating Self-Discipline. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have like a a kind of conscious actor, and a lot of us also have uh, an autopilot. And and the conversation was like how to merge those two, like the conscious actor, the do-gooder, the person who loves and respects self, how do you put that on autopilot, right? Because a lot of times the unthinking autopilot is where we get into trouble. That was a feature of the conversation. And um, I've read a lot on habit. And one of, the, one of the takeaways just generally from that reading would be adding new habits have a way of crowding, like building new habits and embracing new habits and starting to feel good and, and feel the rewards of new habits can actually help crowd some of those bad habits out. When you see the undeniable reward of something new that you've added, and there's only so much time and so much energy that you have to devote to habit, um, that can actually be a way of erasing some of the bad ones. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, I I think a big part of it is uh, I'm really um, fascinated by the, the book, The Power of Habit. He talks about habit loops. And uh, habit loops are the cue for the habit, which then triggers the routine, which then generates a reward. And the way he puts it is that the trick is to keep the same cue and the same basic reward, uh, or at least an analog of, the, of that reward, and, and to swap out the, the routine. And, and so that, that's a lot more feasible than just trying to just quit a bad habit cold turkey is that like, like okay? Well, try to get a substitute uh, re- reward from like a, a good habit somehow. And so I, I would just really recommend that book. Can you think of an example of that? Even one that he gives in the book? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll, I might need to jog my memory a bit. There, there was one he, he, where he talks about his own uh, success that he had was when he had a bad habit of eating a cookie. Uh, he'd go down to the cafeteria and buy a cookie in the afternoon and he was just gaining a lot of weight just, just from that one cookie, like extra cookie every single day. So he tried like, you know, putting a post-it as just like a reminder, like no more cookies kind of thing, but that never worked. But what did work is that he realized that what made the habit so powerful was that when he would go down to, to eat the cookie, he'd also chat up. Uh, his coworkers that were mm. also down in the cafeteria at the same time, and um, so so what he did is that like when he felt that craving uh, for a cookie, then he just like went over to some other part of the office and just chatted with his coworkers there, and that's what did the trick finally. Yeah, so I think it's also the conscious. You know, this merges with journaling, journaling nicely, identifying through living consciously what are the needs I'm trying to get met. What are the discomforts that I'm struggling with that this thing quiets, this bad habit, and then finding another way to do that? Man, when those words come out of my mouth, it sounds so easy. I understand that it's not. But, you know, trying to raise your your conscious awareness of that as much as possible is obviously a huge step in the right direction. And, you know, just back to the, to the de-schooling topic, a lot of this conversation that I've had was kids transitioning out of public school into some kind of self-directed education environment, having to go through a process of becoming aware 
of all the bad habits, not that they built, but that were sort of built into them is, uh, I think, a really important feature of de-schooling that perfectly relates to what we're talking about. Yes, definitely. So you're a parent. A lot of this process that we're discussing as far as, you know, being good guides and helping kids fix their rudders, if, you know, there are people out there who are the parents of school children, trust, trusting kids to be able to self-direct is a considerable challenge. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that as well, whether it's challenges you've had in doing it, challenges you've observed, that letting go. Like it's, it's, you wrote a blog called Parents Can Trust Kids to Teach Themselves. Mm-hmm. In it, you said this is an easy thing to do, and it's also the hardest thing to do. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. Yeah, um, I think that's from a, a John Holt uh, quote. Yeah, I really think that we can trust kids because of that innate curiosity. That th- there's the the fear is that if we trust kids, then they will just do nothing. That they'll just waste their time. That that they'll just indulge in in whims, and um, and that they'll never make anything out of themselves. Right. But that gives really short shrift to to human nature because if humans had that propensity, then we, we wouldn't have gotten, gone very far. We would have like failed as a species. But humans have a way um, that they, they, Peter Gray talks about like the, the uh, evolutionary basis that, that it's actually an, an evolutionary adaptation to want to seek out enriching experiences that help you become more independent. And, um, and so we can trust in that propensity. And so the way Peter Gray talks about it, that in hunter-gatherer tribes, that would manifest uh, in kids seeing the adults using the tools of their people, like bows and arrows and, and knives and, um, and, and other kinds of more simple tools, and, and want to use them too, just want to uh, emulate them in, in the use of them and, and and become like the, the role models that they see. Um, and, and there's this fascination with it, like that, that they just naturally have. If we surround kids with similar role models using the, the modern tools of today, well, you know, kids see that the way that adults thrive and um, it, around them is by using these important tools and developing the and utilizing these important skills like like literacy like um, technology like numeracy and kids want to emulate that and so if they see that around them they're they're going to want to pursue it themselves and um and it's it's only when when their only alternative to to doing things that don't interest them at all like just like forced to do worksheets and forced to do things that they don't that they, they don't see as relevant to them at the moment um is just mindless mindless entertainment then or what seems to us to be mindless entertainment that's what they're going to pursue but but if if they as as long as they have a rich environment with lots of role models and and access to lots of tools you can trust that they are going to uh to to use those role models and tools Okay. So like 
when you started down that road, I was actually preparing a challenge that I don't even know if we, we have time for. We've got about 10 minutes left. But Peter Gray took me to school on this, for lack of a better expression. He turned me around on video games, right? And I was doing like half devil's advocate. I've obviously observed beneficial outcomes of that type of engagement in young people and some outcomes that did not seem so so beneficial. And I've given lots of examples on my show of, of both in the past. But, you know, my contention was that, like, look, we can talk about, you know, the evolutionary history of, of human beings. Uh, that's fine. I kind of feel, and maybe this is cynical, like a lot of that has been rewired in just the last 10 years, right, with how kids are growing up today and what they're exposed to and not having good role models for these things. So that challenge still exists, even though I ultimately do wind up agreeing with you there. And uh, like I said, Peter Gray helped straighten me out on that when when we talked about the benefits of, of technology. But it doesn't mean there isn't a lot of misuse of it. And it doesn't mean that like you go into any bar or restaurant and I feel like half the adults in there um, who could be role models are bent down at the neck like this, staring at their phones, you know, even if they're even if they're with other people. So do you have any ideas or actual examples of specifics on how that is being modeled for young people in positive ways? I mean, I'm sure if we sat here for a minute, I could think of a ton of them too, but I'd like to hear what you'd have to say about that. Yeah, well, I do agree with Peter Gray uh, about video games because even if the amount of time that kids might be spending on video games isn't the best out of all possible worlds, like given the options that they're allowed to have, oftentimes that's like the best option available to them. And that's why they pursue it. Because as Peter Gray puts it, that that is one of the these virtual worlds that they have access to are one of the few areas where they have any kind of agency, any kind of volition, any kind of like exploration uh, and, um, and, and that isn't supervised. Like, like, especially now that like not only in school, but even outside of school that they're, that kids are constantly in um, uh, adult supervised overseen activities and, and they're constantly being monitored and constantly being checked and corrected. Like the virtual world of the video game is often the only escape from that. It's, yes. it's the only, it's the only realm where they're not being monitored by adults and, and where they can, um, they, they can have free interplay with with other kids and have rivalries and 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 it's it's messy and there's there's social dynamics where they're 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 being mean to each other and, and and instead of having an adult swoop in and correct one person it's like they have to work it out themselves and 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 that they're they're they have challenges that they're trying to uh to overcome and and they have um sort of like natural pecking orders like natural hierarchies of competence that they're that they're developing and and all this rich dynamic stuff can actually happen and not be crushed down by like the arbitrary authority and the the stultifying uh control of of adults like it like it is in the real world absolutely so i i totally agree with you and i think when i was talking to peter about this there might have been some equivocation on video games where I'm saying that word, and he is obviously receiving that and understanding all the benefits of it. And what I'm thinking about is screens, right? I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. kids holding phones. I'm thinking about kids holding iPads. I was absolutely horrified one day when I took my four-year-old niece's iPad and just stared at it for 10 minutes. And it is the most—there's like this kid's version of YouTube 
where it's just these other kids who don't really speak. They just kind of giggle and open candy. And and she was just so fixated on this thing. And I had a very, very difficult time imagining how that could be good. So I guess the distinction that's worth making is between active and passive, right? There's plenty of passive screen activity that I think obviously is detrimental. But the active screen activity that you're describing, I mean, I guess short of like getting outside and moving around and doing other types of play, like, you know, in a social environment, far superior to being pinned into a desk and doing work that you can't find meaning in. Yeah, right. So so that's the whole caveat of all of this is that like if they had, if if they could actually go outside and play and have unsupervised uh, free play with, with other kids, that probably would be better and would be more enriching. But again, it, it all goes back to trust because yeah. if um, if those, if, if a more enriching alternative was available to them, you can trust that they would gravitate to that because it would be more rich um, because, you know, you would have the physicality of it and learning how to negotiate physical risk and, um, and rough and tumble play and like the subtleties of social dynamics that you can only have in face-to-face interactions and those kinds of things. If kids had that available to them, I, I really think that they would choose that at least a lot of the time over video games. And, and there's a great passage in Carrie McDonald's book, Unschooled, where, where she talks about that actual happening in some unschooled programs where overdoing it in, the sc- in screen time isn't as much of an issue be- because there's so, so much rich voluntary experience available to, to kids as an alternative. And, and I would say even with, with some of the, uh, the screen time that we think of as passive, it, it, YouTube can be pretty active in the sense of kids choosing videos um kids can like pick up a lot of culture like like my daughter uh likes youtube she she also likes video games she also likes playing with friends but i've noticed that she's learned a lot from youtube and it started with some of those unboxing videos that that you've talked about and that that seem especially to to adult eyes as as inane and, and vapid but you know there are there are things that they're picking up that that we that we don't necessarily pick up on, and then eventually it evolved into like ever more uh, sophisticated videos that that she was interested in, and now she's always blowing me away with like things like cultural references and, and words and facts that like I know I never taught her, and and I, I know I know her mom never taught her that that she picks up from YouTube. Well, that's an awesome final word about trust, then, isn't it? Like, all right, you know what you're doing with these candy unboxing videos. We'll see where it goes. And it it paid (laughs) off. I I like that story. So that does actually open up a whole uh, bunch of different directions we could go in there. But we're out of time for today. I really appreciate the conversation. It was great to finally have you on the show. If people want to learn more about your writing or your work, is Fee.org the best place to go? I have an archive, so if you just search Dan Sanchez uh, and fee.org, it'll it'll come right up. And education is just one of the subjects. You talk a lot about culture. It, it seems like a bulk of your work was on economics, uh, so yes. people are interested in those subjects. 
uh, go check it out. And Dan also used to do a podcast called FeeCast, which was kind of like a roundtable, very, very informal, fun to listen to shows. And the archives of that are available in any podcatcher. So check that out as well. And I also wanted to plug one particular fee uh, uh, offering that especially for that I think is really powerful for de-schooling. And that is uh, T.K. Coleman's Revolution of One video series, podcast, motivational Mondays, really inspiring stuff. And uh, for parents, um, the the Liberate Ed newsletter by Carrie McDonald yes. is tremendous resource. Excellent. Well, Dan, I look forward to continuing this conversation sometime in the near future. Me too, Brett. Thank you so much. We've got time. Yes, we Before we part ways today, if what you just heard is building your interest in helping us gain and maintain presence and continue to build the legacy of the School Sucks Project, you can become a supporting member of our community. There are links in the show notes, but the easiest and most options-filled way is to become a patron. It is patreon.com slash school sucks. We have several tiers of membership but what we do here at School Sucks, value for value exchange, I first heard that term on another podcast I listened to called No Agenda, where people get value from the show, and then they return value to the people who do the hard work of creating the show. What we've developed at School Sucks, and I'm very proud of this, is the value for value and guess what more value exchange it has that extra step in it. And what that is, is this. Most of our great work at this point is archived, and we also create content exclusively for our supporters. So when you send me the most important signal that I can receive that you find this show valuable, we exchange value. And then I give you access to a whole bunch of additional content, including a long list of educational archives that I believe is worth your time and attention. Also for this specific Essential School Sucks endeavor, we have partnered with Praxis after I think I probably said Praxis on the show and praised their work, I don't know, 500 times since first hearing about it seven years ago. But in short, Praxis is an alternative to the tracks we are put on, headed towards college at a very, very young age. College for too many uh, thoughtful, entrepreneurial, and ambitious young people is becoming an enormous opportunity cost. And Praxis was the first really viable alternative I ever encountered. So linked in the show notes for this episode and right 
at the top of the homepage for schoolsucksproject.com, you can learn how or how your teen can skip college. And now a man who will certainly emerge from the Essential School Sucks collection as one of its all-stars, Isaac Morehouse. Isaac is the founder of Praxis, has a free book after helping hundreds of young adults succeed in the professional and entrepreneurial world without college. They're sharing some of their philosophy and strategies for doing that. So you can get the book for free. It's linked in the show notes and right at the homepage, schoolsucksproject.com. All right, see you soon.